You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Great interview with Stan Ellsworth um, about the importance of history. And a lot of us, I just, I don't think we get it. As much as, I mean, I don't get it. I, do you know a lot of history? Do you know about American history? Could you sit down this holiday season and talk about some of these great moments and stories of, of valor and bravery on battlefields? Do you know about that? Because if your kids are asking you questions like mine are, holy cow, it's scary. So we probably need to step up and, and, and maybe do a little exercise mentally this weekend. Um, don't just let Memorial Day be the vacation weekend, the beginning of summer. Kids are out of school vacation time. Is there a way that we could just take a little time, tell a story, find two or three stories, go to a graveyard, and go buy some flowers and actually go put them on the, the graves of, of soldiers or somebody that, uh, that served this country. It's, a, it's just an opportunity to teach your kids, your grandkids. We need these stories handed down. So one of the things I suggest that would really help is – Go find people that are in your family that have been a part of uh, – that have served in the military and go tell their stories. Everybody has somebody somewhere in their family history who's probably been in the military. Go talk about it. If they're alive, go take your kids on Memorial Day and celebrate that person. If you have a neighbor that served in Iraq, take them something. Make an effort to go out of your way to thank somebody in the armed services, in the military. There will be parades. Go look for the parades in your area. But make it a point to actually direct this Memorial Day to the memory of those that have served and given their lives. And um, and teach your kids and your grandkids. It doesn't mean you still can't go you know, to the ball game or boating or do whatever you do. But it's powerful, folks. And Memorial Day is it's it's a day I also remember vividly going with my family to the you know, to cemeteries, getting all the flowers out, taking care of uh of the sites of, of my family members that had passed away, and also to hear the stories. I remember sitting in the back of the truck and the uncles talking about those that had gone to war and what had happened and who died where and how that happened. And I remember hearing the stories. And I remember them being handed down. I remember the pictures of an uncle in a Navy uniform. And sadly, I don't even remember him. So then my kids are like, so have you served in the military, Dad? No, no, I haven't. But you had a, I had an uncle that did. Really, where did he serve? No idea. So we want to change this uh, this 
part of our life and start to actually carry the stories forward. I think Stan made a great point that if we don't bring the stories forward, we are losing the history, but we're also losing ourselves. Then what do the kids think is the key to being an American? If it's not the battlefield and the character, and you see it when we talk about Iraq, we talk about how many Americans died there, but we also just talk about the ability of an American to stand and fight and fight for what you need to fight for. And Americans seem to have that. But we may not have that if we don't keep the stories and the rights and the privileges clear in our kids' minds. Someday we might lose the willingness to fight for what we believe in. Heaven forbid, can you imagine the day that we no longer understand the price of freedom? So just challenge it, all of us, myself included. We need to do something more this this uh, weekend than just going out and having a great barbecue. Also, it's a great time, I think, to just start traditions and to create some traditions. I mean, if you really, if to make it easy, go find American Ride on BYU or uh, on BYU TV, and um, watch a few segments of it. Go watch what happened at Gettysburg. Go watch what happened at Valley Forge and see if you don't feel something. The, the amazing thing about the country and all of the lives that have been given is there's an incredible spirit to it. There's an incredible peace to it. It's a religious type of experience. So what if we just turn that on? Try that. Monday morning when you wake up, turn on American Ride. Go find two or three shows. Just start watching it. And you know what? Your kids will gather around and focus on it. Then talk about it. Use those conversations. Use those stories to put, uh, to put some conversations into the minds and the hearts. Ask some questions. Can you imagine going to war at 15? Ask your 15-year-old son that. Can I take my iPhone? No. There's just a lot of great uh, things we've been given and blessed with. And so I challenge you to to make it a point this year to talk to your kids about it. Also, make it a really important point to connect to those uh, other generations that are older, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. They have so many stories. And go ask them about the war. One of my favorite guests, go look up in our podcast. I did a show with a a man named Terry Herschel. And... uh, it was phenomenal, a Vietnam vet, and he tells all he does is he tells the stories about Vietnam. And you see, this is a guy that saw the people closest to him dying regularly. He was a medic. And I sit there and I think, wow, he's lived through all of that and is willing to talk and share and is honored, you know, at assemblies. They honored him recently, but nobody knows what that man went through for our country. And he doesn't want to talk about it very much. It was painful. It's hard to go back to. But he will share it if he thinks it'll move the life and the heart of a child. So go find those stories, folks. Um, they're out there everywhere. All you got to do is listen to the stories of the, the vets coming home from these wars. They're losing arms. They're losing legs. They're losing their lives. So um, let's make a difference on this Memorial Day. That's the challenge from the Matt Townsend Show. Everybody, let's go do it. Make it better and and make it a tradition in your family to always honor the great blessings of being an American.
You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we always uh, joke, laugh about the millennials and how they're, you know, they're not leaving home. They just keep boomeranging back. But you know what? Um, There's something to that. And uh, Christine Romans, uh, our last guest, just brought up the fact that they, they have such a great relationship with their parents. That's not all bad. Well, yeah, but people need to grow up and... They need to learn to be on their own. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And they also need to learn to relate to their parents. So you may already have that great relationship with your kids. You may also be wondering, uh, you don't want to over, you don't want to enable it, right? You don't want them to never learn how to get on their feet. So that idea she was bringing up of maybe if they come back, you, you basically create a contract with them. And I, I'm a big believer in that. And you sit down. And we create a win-win. And you talk to your millennial and you tell them what's a win for you and what's a win for them. I loved Christine's idea that you have the the millennial be in charge of your technology. If they're going to live at home, you be in charge of your technology. Let them be in charge of the technology in making sure you've got the best router and the best Wi-Fi numbers. And I mean, use that. And let's have a plan for how you're going to pay off your debt. So the way I would do it is to make sure the child's getting ahead, not just, you know, getting comfortable, but that they're getting ahead in their debt. So I'd probably sit down with them and and have them set some goals, have them explain what their goals are and start making sure that uh, maybe in a quarterly meeting or something, we just talk about how things are working. I'd also maybe... You know, be careful about giving them their free space. Give them enough free space. Um, it doesn't mean you, you always have to make every meal for them. You might even want to negotiate that. Should I plan on making a meal for you? How does that work? And and what happens when we bring friends over and, and all of those discussions that need to be there? But you're not going to get very far with your millennials if you if you just have a bunch of ideas like they're just no good. You know, they're just weird. These kids aren't the same. They're not going to be like a baby boomer. They're not going to be like a Gen Xer. They're just different. And your child is even different from that. So there are some, you know, uh, millennials that um, Christine was calling Henry's, high earners, not rich yet, Henry's. Um, and, And, you know, maybe there's some that just love video games. So those that love video games, I wouldn't just probably have your millennial just come home and work on video games all day. I would make sure that there's some other plan, and um, that that's a hard role you got to play. I have a child that's about to graduate from college or from high school, and you know it's time to set some new rules and some limits. And he's incredibly smart, and yet doesn't love school and yet is incredibly talented online and has built, you know, websites and YouTube pages and knows how to get traffic to them and knows how to make money online and all legal and ethical and moral. So we've got a really big plan for him. (laughs) When school's done, he's going to get a job. We're not even going to pretend to send him to college yet. He's going to get a job. And we're going to negotiate a really good deal where he can live at home, but he's got to get learning what a work life is like. And it's hard because he can make money, you know, 
putting together a wedding video for some couple and make great money and get it done in a day's work and then doesn't have work tomorrow. So everybody's different. So don't just assume that any age you know difference is going to automatically be a millennial. Figure out your child. Figure out what their wins are. What do they need out of the deal? And what do you need out of the deal? Be sure that you also share your win. To make a win-win, it's got to be mutually beneficial. You both have to be winning. Don't assume you know what their win is. Well, your win is that you get a place to sit and eat. Well, that's not always a win. They might be able to get that somewhere else, and it may not be better for them. Figure out what their win is and also be willing to voice what your win is. I'd also make the the arrangement short-term and evaluated regularly. Let's evaluate it today. Let's evaluate it in a, every quarter. Let's just sit down and see how we're doing. Is this agreement working for you? Is it working for me? I would really tie it to some other goals like financial uh, debt payments, advancing, you know, or, or money, aggregating money so that these people can go out and get into something like a home or if they're dating somebody, eventually get married or whatever. So it, it's a plan. Everybody is different. Um, and uh, I think in the end, you're, you're going to want to stay close to these people as well. We talked to, to other guests last week that so many people are just, you know, they're big into just getting away from everybody, going, you know, make their big money in New York. And when they get to New York, they find out that that's not what makes them happy. What makes them happy is being at home with their family and seeing their family and being close to, you know, the a lot of other benefits. So talk to your kids, for heaven's sake. Let's just figure this out. We can figure it out together. We're smart people. Don't judge the millennials. Um and don't just judge them by a generation. Judge, you know, talk to them. Figure out what your kids' goals are. They need your feedback. They need your push. They need your insight. They also need your patience. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with a rising interest in positive psychology and mindful living, it's becoming clear, clearer that living a joyful life is a choice. And uh, some practices for choosing joyful living range from gratitude to mindfulness. Our guest today, Deborah Heiss, uh, is the editor and director of um, Live, or, sorry, Live Happy, which is a magazine, a great website, by the way, um, if you go online livehappy.com and just wonderful podcasts there tools uh, that can help you there but also um, Deborah Heiss is the author of the book Live Happy 10 Practices for Choosing Joy and she uh, joins us now live to kind of help us work through our own kind of lack of joy Um, Deborah Heiss welcome to the Matt Townsend Show thank you very much Matt pleasure to be here great to have you talk to us about um the choice, because I, it seems like a lot of people aren't into choosing joy naturally. Um, I mean, it seems like it would be a natural thing to do, but we get really caught up in, 
how miserable we can be sometimes and how miserable our lives are. Yeah, well, at Live Happy, one of our our main mission really is to get people to understand they can choose to be happier. That it's not something that's pre-programmed for you. It's not a uh, not you're not truly a victim in your environment. You can actually do things to increase your overall happiness and your overall life satisfaction. You know, improve your well-being, and these are things that you can do every day. And most people don't know it. Um, they don't they don't understand that uh, their mental health is as much in their control as their physical health is to a certain you know to a yeah. certain extent. How did you get into this? This topic of live happy. Why did, of all the things you could have focused your life on, why this topic? Well, I was working at uh, Success Magazine, uh, the current version of Success. I was the founding editor in chief of that. And Success Magazine is really a personal development magazine with a small business wrapper on it. And while we were working there, um, we came across, while I was working there, I came across this positive psychology movement, which is really a whole bunch of researchers and, um, you know, psychologists that were out there trying to figure out how to use psychology to make well people thrive, give well people the ability to thrive, rather than focusing on um, making sick people well, which is what, you know, psychology had really focused on up until that point. And it was really fascinating because I came across all this science and this scientific evidence that showed that you could do things to improve your mental health, your overall well-being, and improve your chance of thriving. Um, and that, to me, really hit a chord because so much of personal development is really just a, a bunch of people who are, you know, show, telling you, I did this and so this happened, or I did that and so this happened. You got to set goals. You got But here was the science backing up why some of that stuff works, and also um, really focusing on living the life you want rather than living the life, you know, success. Um, you know, a life of monetary success or a life of business success, but really living a life where you could sit down and go, you know what, I have a happy life. And and, and that really struck a chord with me. It's who I am as a person, and um, Live Happy was born out of that. Hmm. I mean, isn't that basic stuff, right? It, yet the, the positive psychologist basically had to buck the trend because historically we were always looking at the abnormal psychological behavior instead of what healthy people were doing. What What are some of the traits that you've found um, and some of the 10 practices for choosing joy? Well, you know, a, a couple of them that I, I mean, there, there's 10, obviously, but yeah. a couple of them that speak really strongly to me are um, gratitude, which is really, we, we overlook, as, as as human beings, we tend to look at what's next. You know, we reach that goal, and it feels good for about 30 seconds, and then we go, well, what's next? What am I going to do next? Because it wears off. Um, and we're, we're that way about everything in our lives. It's not we, – we quit focusing on what we have, and we start focusing on what we don't have. Mm. So for me, the practice of gratitude really is taking the time every day to recognize the good things that you have in life. Um, and it's really important uh, to do that because that's what gives you a sense of satisfaction, right? Yeah. But – but it's also what really, to me, gratitude leads you to be a kinder, um, more loving person as well, because you're grateful for what you're, you're grateful. Um, so there's simple practices like writing down three things you're grateful for every day, be specific, make them unique. You can't just write down my kids every single day. But if you do that for, uh, for a month, your, your mindset changes. You start looking at what you have rather than looking at what you're missing. Mm. And for me, that, that's, that's a really uh, powerful one. Uh, another one that's really powerful for me is uh, mindfulness. And this was something that I really had to work on. 
it's the act of being present. You know, a lot of people hear mindfulness and they think meditation, and that's certainly part of it. But, um, you know, I had the pleasure of hearing Tom Rath speak last summer. Yeah. And, and, and he's a fantastic guy. Yeah, fantastic. he's been on the show two or three times. Don't you love him? I do. I do. Yeah. He's a fantastic guy. But he said this thing that really resonated with me. He said, the, perhaps over the next 10 years, the single biggest challenge we may face as individuals is simply paying attention to the person sitting across from us. Oh, so true. <laughs> we are so distracted yeah. by everything. It's nuts. And, you know, a practice of mindfulness isn't just meditation. It's a practice of being present. And you know, I have three small children. I have, I have a job with, with meetings. I have things that I want to do in life, vacations I want to take. And it's really easy to get distracted by everything. But, you know, when I go to my son's hockey game and watch him play hockey, I put my phone away and I watch him play hockey because that's a moment of connection between the two of us. Huh. And being present in that is very different than just being there. Um, and the same is true for a business meeting. You know, put your phone on a table in a business meeting and, and people think that you're distracted. It doesn't matter whether it's off or not. Oh, it's <laughs> you know, so true. Just, just the act of being present. So for me, those are two of the practices that I've really started to employ in my own life that have made a difference for me. And it's, it's, it really is um, – it's almost like – and I, I guess this is appropriate because technology is driving us into this state of – you know, maybe more efficient, what's next, kind of constantly on mentality. So the idea that mindfulness would, would appear um, now is maybe the antidote to, to some of the tech push. But the other thing that you brought up about gratitude is so powerful because if I'm constantly just in the go mode to get the next thing, I will never find peace because I never enjoy – the 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 win. I never enjoy what I do have. Right, and and here and here's the crazy thing. Most people don't understand. It's not just about the way you feel. It's actually about your health. People who are grateful experience better sleep, have better immunity, and lower blood pressure mm. than than less less grateful counterparts. If if you know normalized for everything else. I mean, it's about your health as well as for everything as well as. Uh, you know, how you feel. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we do, we throw it out to be that this is just an emotional benefit, but physiologically you're going to, you're going to be better, feel healthier, sleep better, have, I mean, joy. How about that? Just, just be able to watch your kid play hockey and not have to, you know, answer think about work. Right. Exactly. The other, uh, you know, the other thing, um, you know, when we talk about happiness and you talk about health, I mean, the, the evidence is getting to the point where it's overwhelming. Um, you know, they did a study of seven-year-olds that had a positive outlook in yeah. life versus seven-year-olds who didn't. Thirty years later, the seven-year-olds that had a positive attitude at seven experienced less physical, um, you know, physical uh, damage, less illness. They were healthier. You know, wow. a pos- you know, so a positive attitude at the age of seven can dictate how healthy you are. At the age of 40. Are we born with that? Or, I mean, I, I know we could probably train it up, teach it up uh, with our children, which is probably we ought to, you know, you know, inoculate them for, from all of the other problems. Do you, are, or are some people just born more grateful? Well, you know, the, the thing of it is happiness has a genetic component. And uh, there's this um, survey that uh, Sonia Lubomirsky did a bunch of years ago that people point at as 
as, as statistics, and it's not quite statistics. Uh, when I talked to her, she made that really clear. But generally, 50% of how happy you are is dictated by your genetics. Some of us just have higher set points for happiness or for, you know, for positive attitude, just like many of us have higher set points for athletic ability. You know, I, I, could, I could try and do professional golf for my whole life. I'd never make it. I'm just not that coordinated. Yeah. Darn it. <laughs> but Darn it. But <laughs> I, if, I, if I practice golf every day, I get better. Right. So if only 50% of it is dictated by you know, your set point, you can still get better. You can still be happier. You can still have a more positive attitude. You can still have better relationships than you have right now. Because the other 50%, um, about 10% of its environment, most people think it's more. Most people think that they're victims of their environment. And certainly if you live in a war zone, you know, if you live in Syria right now, yes, the environment probably has a much stronger um, place, you know, effect on your happiness. But for those of us who live here, only about 10% of its environment, which means the other 40% is made up of choices that we make, things that we choose to do or not do every day. Hmm. That's why I love bringing it up. The more we talk about it, the more, I mean, I guess we're going to end up pushing it into the front of our minds, hopefully do something about it. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Deborah Heiss, uh, the author of um, the book Live Happy, 10 Practices for Choosing Joy, and uh, also the website livehappy.com. We'll come right back and continue this discussion and get into uh, the science behind the wisdom of meaning, which is one of her chapters in the book. Stick with us, folks. Uh, Doing what we can to help you live happy right here on The Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show. On uh, the show with us right now is Deborah Heiss. She is the um, author of the book uh, Live Happy, also the website by the same name, livehappy.com. And uh, the book is Live Happy 10 Practices for Choosing Joy. Today she's teaching us about um, some of those practices where th- this is a major movement. And if, if you're sitting there thinking, wow, there's a lot of people talking about mindfulness and gratitude lately. One of the reasons is, um, she mentioned it earlier, there's a, a movement in, in, a, in a form of psychology called positive psychology. And the basic premise is simply when we focus on what people that are healthy are doing, um, it tends to be get more value than when we focus on what people that are unhappy are doing. And uh, the tendency historically of psychology was to focus more on what was not working instead of what was working. And so... Now, after 20 or I mean, how many years, 30 plus years of uh, positive psychology research, holy cow, now we're getting a lot of tools and ideas and solutions for what works for healthy people. And uh, Deborah, you've you've put a lot of these together in your book, Live Happy. Um, Talk to us. And first of all, welcome back. We appreciate you being here. Thank you. My my pleasure, really. And talk to us about um, this idea. One of your chapters is about the science behind the wisdom of meaning. Yeah, meaning, I think, is what we're all after. Uh, feeling that our life matters. I mean, it, you know, 
one of the great uh, one of the great things about meaning is that this is something that everybody understands. They want to feel like they're part of something larger than themselves. Right. They want to feel like their life has meaning. But the reality is that it literally may be a matter of life and death for you if you're older. I know that seems a bit extreme. Wow, scary. But in, in one study of elderly people, those who felt their lives were rich in meaning had a 57% less hazard of dying than those that who felt their lives had no meaning. In other words, just having your having the feeling that you have meaning keeps you healthier, keeps you engaged, and and connected to that, really connected to meaning is is the is, is connection. You know, we have to feel. You know, there are two different chapters in the book. One is on connection. We're talking about connection with other people, and the other is on meaning. But to me, they're so intertwined; they're almost inseparable. Hmm. I love that. I mean, there's some research that's come out of BYU that, uh, you know, if you yeah, if you are disconnected, if you feel like you don't have a social group, I mean, it's like smoking. I can't remember the number, like three or four packs of cigarettes a month. Right. Exactly. To your health. Fact, yeah, there's a there's a longitudinal study that was done for on, on 300 men. So this is a long term study. And it turns out that um, being connected to other people may be the only thing that matters having meaningful relationships, because mm. even if they had money, health, and good careers, they weren't happy unless they had strong relationships with other people. Wow. Um, it, it really is, if you take that out, if you take out strong connection, you don't, you don't have the happiness. You don't have the reason, the drive for getting up every day. You don't have the why. And if you don't have the why, you don't have the meaning. Um, I think a lot of people think uh, meaning and purpose are the same thing, but a lot of people have purpose. Right. Um, it's you know my purpose is to raise good children. If you're if you're if you're a stay-at-home mom, well that's your purpose. But it's the meaning you derive from that, the why you feel it's important to do that, that really is what brings you your happiness and brings you your joy. Do you get so if I, if I have um, if I have something I love doing or I have a purpose of improving relationships for people uh, that I come in contact with. You're saying it's it's it might be more important than just knowing what you want to do. It's more important to get down to the actual why behind it. Yes, absolutely. And for for people in you know my job, I have the best job in the world. You know, yeah. In my day, just day looking at this stuff about how to how to make people thrive. I mean, who who and learning about it and being able to apply it to my own life. Who wouldn't want this job? But let's say your job is something else. Maybe your job is um, answering the phone and being a customer service agent. Why you do that job? What's the meaning behind it? What's the, you know, your purpose is maybe to make money for your family, which is great. But if you can find meaning in what you're doing, you're going to be much happier um, in that job that you spend a third of your week at, or, you know, and half your, more than half your waking hours at. For example, if you feel that by delivering excellent customer service, you're answering the phone, you're helping people, and you feel good because you're actually helping people, so you've got a meaning there then you're much more likely to enjoy your job. You're much more likely to be happier. Hmm. Or maybe, maybe you build something with your hands. And if you can picture the person who purchases that piece of furniture that you build and the joy that they're going to get having it in their home, you feel like you're improving families. It's really figuring out what is the meaning behind how you're spending your time. That is like that, – that could probably help anybody that is maybe stuck in a job where they – they know it's they know it's important what they do. Like I'm thinking of like maybe a medical doctor. They know what it's important and it makes a good income, but they're not. They've kind of lost their joy. They've lost their energy. 
maybe what they could do is start digging deeper into figuring out what's what is it that makes you feel joy in this job and then get back to that yeah there's a great there's there's the book is filled with not only with the science by the way it's filled with stories of people who are putting these things into practice yeah and and there's this uh, great story about a, a gentleman um named Alistair Mook, who was a folk singer, and he sang in adult bars all the time, and that's what he did, and he, and he was lucky, and he, he was fortunate to be able to play music and make a living at it, but he had twin daughters, and one of them got cancer, and um, she's fine. She recovered. She mm. was five when she got cancer, but they spent a lot of time in, hotel, uh, in, in hospital rooms, and so what he ended up doing was starting to write music with his daughter, and they wrote music, and they put it on a CD, and then that CD is now distributed to other families who have children with cancer, and their songs about really dealing with what's going on. There's a great song called When I'm Bald, you know, uh, and it's got a great video with it. But he will tell you that his purpose was to play music, but he didn't find his meaning and why he was doing it until he could put his music to something larger. And now he plays in front of kids more than in front of adults and enjoys it. Still mm. plays music. Still, yeah. still does what he was put on earth to do, still has his purpose. But his meaning really is um, attached to helping these families go through what his family went through and, and putting perspective in that and giving those children a voice to their emotions. Yeah. I mean, again, um, it's almost like it appeared, right? They, they were already in it, starting to do it, not maybe fully understanding why, but, and, and then, they can, then they can figure out why. And I think I think a lot of us find our purpose easier than our meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've been in magazines and and publishing for a long time, and I've enjoyed it. But um, you know, this was the fir- this is the first job I personally had where I feel like okay, this is really me. This is what this is what I'm here to do. It's still publishing, still editing, but now it's doing something that I understand how it connects to what the changes I want to make in the world. Right. It's. Uh, it also says and almost shows us that creativity is is a critical part of this. You've got to, you've got to almost be a, a a creative, or just a creator of your own happiness and life instead of just kind of a bystander. Right. Um, we have a chapter on creativity in the book as well. And you know the big thing about creativity is most people don't think of themselves as creative, uh, but. We were all kids once, and kids are phenomenally creative, right? I've got a four-year-old. She, she can talk to herself and create worlds all day, so, you know, right. out, of, out of two blocks and, 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 and one toy, you know, whatever is going on. We all have creativity. We forget to exercise it, and it is really important that we exercise our creativity, not only because it boosts our happiness, but because it actually um, – enhances our ability to think outside the box. It enhances our ability to really think about why we're doing something, to be creative problem solvers. And, you know, when we are creative, um, our brain releases five neurochemicals that enhance our performance and improve our moods. Mm. I mean, there's, there's a con- you know, there's a connection that we make when we're creative, when we, you know, we spend too much time being adults. There's a, a, a point where when we're creative, we really do enhance our lives, and we forget that because we've got too much that we're supposed to do. We forget to take time to do the things that really are different. Right. It's, um, it, it really is, I guess, in the end, 
this is your life, right? This is everybody has a life to live, and you can you can do as much with it as or as little with it as you want, regardless of how much you actually have. Absolutely. I mean, and here's the thing: we all tend to be caught up, at least in this country, we all tend to be caught up in trying to have what everybody else tells us is important. One of the great things about happiness is that's not what it's about. It's not. It's about finding out what's meaningful to you and right. having that. Um, it's not about you know uh, lots of money. It's not about the best job in the world. You know, it. You you may be perfectly happy to 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 work at a grocery store and go home and paint, or work at a grocery store because you know that it feeds your kids, and then you have great picnics on the weekends or you go hiking. What is it that you want out of life that's important um, to you? Not to the world at large, because we are we are all different. We are all created differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to assume that we all want the same thing is is uh, is kind of the way the media has painted us. But it's not actually true. No, and it's um, and, and I mean even just looking through the the magazines on the rack, there's so many things that you might see that might be tempting and interesting to you, but also don't necessarily resonate with your inner core, right? With this inner you that so it's this weird balance of getting the real you out into the real world right and, and finding that congruence in your own life because ultimately for me um happiness is is congruence that you're authentic that mm. you are an authentic you and um the rest of us aren't very good at being other people you know yeah. we, <laughs> we're only good at being ourselves so who who are we authentically that's and so I, true I want to mention a couple things yeah. that I think are really important that are in the book. Okay. Uh, the first one is resilience. Um, and this is really important because this has to do with overcoming failure. Many people don't understand that they can build their resilience, that they can become more resilient to, to negative things. We all have bad things that happen to us. Um, but building your resilience or building your grit, it's, it's difficult, but it's something that many people um, don't focus on. Right. Uh, but it, it, you know, some of the best stories in the book, some of the best stories in life were about people who've overcome. You really can um, build your resilience through strong social connections, building a positive attitude, and helping others. Actually helping others overcome things um, helps you build your own resilience. Yeah. But, and also remembering that you, you overcame something to get where you are, right? We've all had challenges. Reflecting on where you've been victorious in the past allows you to move forward um, with a more optimistic outlook. But the other one that um, I would be really remiss if I overlooked is the power of giving back. And we're not talking about, you know, giving a little bit of money here or doing this. We're actually talking about if we can engage in giving something to someone else, which could be as simple as a compliment. You know, you're standing in line with somebody and you go, hey, those are great shoes. That might be the nicest thing they've heard all day. Right. Or you buy, or you get a coworker a cup of coffee while you're at the coffee machine. These small acts of kindness actually give us a rush of endorphins, equivalent to what happens when we're the recipient of a gift. It's, it's, it's strange, but we actually get more out of giving. I, I think everybody's always heard that platitude. It's better to give than to receive. Right. Well, the science shows us it is better to give than it is to receive. There's a better high get giving than getting. Absolutely, without yeah. a doubt. And it's simple stuff, smiling at strangers. I mean, this is not difficult. This is something, if we can all remember to do this as often as possible during the day, 
um, we really do kind of create a positive atmosphere. We create positivity around us because we're building positive connections with people. Yeah. And we talked about that earlier and how important that is. But even positive connections with someone who gets your coffee in the morning or, or who, you know, uh, whatever that is, uh, or, or, you know, holds the door open for you. Those are all positive connections, and all of that fills up your day with positivity and will enable you to, to, to share that more and live a happier life in general. Mm. Deborah, it's great. Uh, I mean, really, it, again, I think what's now happening is science is able to now validate a lot of these things we've always believed, but this is more than just platitudes, right? This is health and this is true happiness. Deborah Heiss is her name. Go to the website, livehappy.com. Also look up the book, Live Happy, 10 Practices for Choosing Joy. Folks, just imagine if you just lived two of the practices, just two, it'll change your life, folks. It's, um, this isn't just blowing smoke. Life is filled with uh, opportunities to um, improve your own happiness and find joy. Life is good, um, even if you're not always feeling that. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. Come back, wrap up the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, there's many a way to create a happy life. Cockroaches may not be one of them. No. But sometimes when there's, a, see, a nasty breakup, there's there's cathartic ways to deal with those emotions. Yeah. And uh, the Bronx Zoo is offering a, a little little help for oh, those good, situations. Good, good, good. For $10, you can name a cockroach at the zoo after your ex. Excellent. <laughs> Which is sure to kill off any lingering positive associations you may have with that individual. Right. Way to get closure. So it says, as of knowing that there's a roach out there with your previous partner's name on it isn't enough, the zoo will also send you a digital certificate to prove that you've named one of the creepy crawlies after someone you dislike. They say hate, but that's kind of a strong Do, does the um Does the person, does your ex know that you've named? Well, you could send them the notification. I mean, it might be cute to have a picture of it that you could send. The, the New York Zoo originally offered this unique service as a Valentine's Day gift. That's romantic. But the concept gained more popularity after vengeful singles started using the zoo animals naming service to assign their ex's names to cockroaches. Wow. And because they have tens of thousands of them, they're not going to run out of cockroaches. There is no so. end. Do they Do they actually mark a cockroach for you? Like, I'm not sure. It's, that'd be it, great. It's like the whole, we'll, we'll name a star after yeah, you. Yeah. But Oaks. I mean, a cockroach, if I could have her like a little number put on the back of the cockroach and then my ex could go see the roach that reminds me. Right. And maybe yeah. have like a uh, just a, a list at the side of the cage. Yeah. So as you go up to view into the little area where the cockroaches are, oh, number four. Oh, there's Brian. Brian's running around. <laughs> <laughs> Look at Brian, the little roach. You know, it's, it's, I guess that is just a sad commentary. On where we've come, that now even the zoos are saying, hey, we could make money. It says the funds raised by the zoo's cockroach naming program will be donated to the Wildlife Conservation Society. That's great. Plus, it's all in good fun. And it beats, you know, stalking them. Yes. Or having just crazy, vengeful feelings. But you you just need to have a break and go name the cockroach. You've said your piece and move on. But you know how many cockroaches Ben would have named by now. I mean, that's all. I mean, that's like a roach motel. Yeah. Tens of thousands. It truly is. 
Then can't talk. He's trying to think what to say. Wait a second. Then just trying to breathe. That was a good burn. A good burn. Thank you very much. Good burn. Do you feel the burn? Ben's got the stomach flu, so um, right now he's a really easy target. Yeah. We aren't even going to take a shot at him. He can't even fight back. It's actually no. sad for us to mention yeah. Ben. Yeah, I hate to even look at him. He's just <laughs> he's breathing through his mouth trying to stay focused, I guess. <sighs> Awkward. We're going to take a break. Give Ben a chance to do what Ben's got to do. And we'll come back, folks. More uh, insight, more information. Dr. Leonard Sachs will be joining us, talking to us about why girls tend to have more anxiety than boys. I have a feeling it has something to do with the boys creating anxiety. I don't know. Maybe not. Probably more chemistry. Stick with us, folks. Helping you uh, figure out how to live on this crazy big ball of mud we call Earth. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Technology and family, they go hand in hand, right? I mean, when I was a kid, grab a stick, go hit a tree. (laughs) That was my childhood. Stick tree games. But now our kids can have iPhones, iPads. Our toddlers can have them. I mean, there's so much going on for a kid today with technology. And the kids want them, right? They're begging for a phone at age eight. How come, how come, how come Jake gets a phone? Well, Jake's 18. Jake's 20. Jake, Jake's, you know, in college. Well, I know, but... I go to school. How do you keep your kids from getting sucked into this crazy vortex called tech? And uh, when you think about it, how do we make sure that we raise these children in a healthier family-oriented way? Especially when you talk about um, we don't have any clue what an iPhone – is going to do long-term to a child. The social skills lost, we don't know. The memory, the attention, the ability to focus, we don't know the long-term impact of what this technology will do on our kids. We've only had it for a few years, right? We do know, according to some research uh, by Microsoft about attention, that our kids are losing, their attention span is dropping. In fact, one of the studies basically compares, you know, our attention span to being, um, I think it's about eight seconds. We have an attention span of about eight seconds. The average, I think, goldfish has about a nine-second attention span. They can focus on something for about nine seconds before they're like, whoa, shiny thing. And part of that is probably because we can just defer, right? We can go right back to our cell phone and My kids, for example, they know they don't need to memorize a lot of stuff because they just can find it on their phone. So how do we integrate the technology of our our lives and keep our family um, healthy, keep them focused, and keep them safe? That's uh, that's really what we want to talk about in this hour of the show. Also – 
one of the um, the big things we we really deal with, and I deal with it a lot with my family, is how do I discipline around it? Because I, if I take my kid's phone away, I immediately have all the power in the house. I mean, I can get my kids to do anything with their phone because that's the great source and the great anchor. And I'm not sure if that's good or not. I mean, at some point, is if that's my only access tool to have any power with my child, then I might be setting myself up. So we want to find other ways to connect. And in a few minutes, we'll be talking with Janelle Burley Hoffman about um, the the importance of of really managing your technology with your children and with your families. But one of the first things I've realized in my own life is if I don't have the discipline to manage myself, I won't have the discipline to manage my child. And I notice it's harder and harder for me to actually just turn off the device and not to just naturally go to it. It's something that to me seems like I naturally just defer to the, the phone. So one of the big things I've I've been a big um, proponent of is let's start having a fast uh, where we just we just turn off the tech and we go without the tech. Let's just turn it off and see if we can go a week. Um, we've had, in fact, we've talked to our own you know Spencer Linton who's uh, on BYU Sports Nation and he lost his phone. Um, when he was on a trip with his wife somewhere, somebody actually stole his phone and he was without a phone for four or five days. And he said, honestly, it made their trip better. Having the phone stolen was difficult. That's hard. But he said it made our family trip better because it allowed us to spend time as a couple just phoneless and focusing on each other. He and his wife, I think, lost their phones. So do you have to have your phone stolen? Is that the best way, the fastest way to... uh to be able to handle technology? And do you just look at yourself? Do you have the discipline yourself to, to turn off the phones, to take the phones? Do you have the ability to, to not have to have the phones being a major part of your life? And again, I don't want to be anti-technology. I think it's fascinating and I think it's incredible what's happening. And yet we also still need to relate, right? At some point, we still need to... Uh, to learn how to be healthier and, and I guess, actually more effective with our technology. For example, uh, some research came out talking about our children. Did you know that our children open – they have an open rate of their text messages of about 99% of text messages are read. 99% of the messages that they receive every year – I mean every day are read by the child. And when you think about that, I mean, we're so frustrated by our kids because they don't do what we want them to do, except – and we can't even get them to pay attention to us, except they will open all of their text messages. How on earth are we supposed to succeed with our kids when they don't even listen to us, when we don't even have that power with them, that influence with them? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's a different day. It's a different age. And I've talked about it on the show before about how many times I've told my kids something and then they Googled it and they corrected me. No, Dad, it's 184,000 miles. Be quiet. Just be quiet. Do you remember back in the day when you didn't have to be exactly accurate? Because the latest 
Encyclopedia Britannica you had was 14 years old? Nope, not anymore. Now, folks, you got to deliver. Now you got to be able to hit it right on the mark, and you got to hit it on the mark every single time. So technology, it's not going away, and I do believe that there is a time and a place where we're going to have to figure our lives out enough to start leading the technology instead of letting it lead us and beat us up. So let me give you some tips and some tools for um, for leading the technology in your life, in your family, not just reacting to it, not just having to take it the way it is. Let's just teach you some basic skills for how you and your family can manage the technology <clears throat> in your life. First thing, I would make it an overt conversation. I would bring it out of the darkness. I would throw it up right into the middle of a conversation with your family. And I would simply say, technology, I'm worried, folks. I'm worried, kids. What, what, what do you see happening with it? And if I were you, I'd try to get your kids to start teaching you about what's really happening with technology. Because to let you in on a crazy little secret you don't have a clue what's really going on with technology because your kids know stuff you don't even think is possible. They have information you didn't even know was accessible. They have tools they're using that they don't you don't even you think you know. You think you know. You think you know what Snapchat is? You don't even know how they're using it, I bet. So what's cool is when I open a discussion up with my kids, some of the younger ones will tell us stuff that the older ones are doing. Some of the older ones will tell us stuff that their friends are doing. And it opens up a whole new conversation that for all of us becomes pretty enlightening. Um, And I'd even overtly talk about uh, issues like pornography and what happens when they see pornography online what they should do. Um, I wouldn't just demonize it. I wouldn't just sit there and blow it up and make it, you know, this horrible thing. I mean, it's horrible. But what I would teach my kids is what to do when they see it. I wouldn't just teach them that it's just gross and horrible. I would teach them that when you see it, do this. Turn off the computer. Come and find me and we'll, we'll get rid of it. Don't be afraid. I don't because the minute you demonize it, folks, and the minute you start making it a horrible, horrible thing that shames the person, all of a sudden they're going to take it underground and you're not going to have access to that child. The downside to um, like pornography, for example, is many of the people that are actually using it and becoming addicted to it, they are they have anxiety. They're, they're anxious and they're using it as a anti-anxiety. They're using it as something that will calm them down, make them relax. It's the brain chemistry behind a lot of this technology that's the problem. It's not always the content. Like we always talk about the violence of the video games. But violence aside, those kids playing video games, it's medicating their brain. That's why they're doing it is because it medicates them. It numbs them. So we can argue about violence all day or we can argue about pornography all day. In my world, I'm more worried about the medication effect. There's a reason they're choosing to go be medicated by that. So watch out for it and be careful because if you shame your child, if you shame your family too much 
about this technology or about what you saw on their phone and you shame them and you call them evil and you call them dirty and guess what's going to happen? They will go underground. They will take the issue and they'll hide it underground. And the minute it goes underground, you're not going to be able to deal with it as well. So instead, just address it full on. Talk about the impact of it. Talk about what happens when we get um, caught up into some technology. Talk about what uh, about balance. Talk about moderation. Talk about why it's important to be able to read and why it's important to read books, not just play video games. Video games are great. And I'm going to bet, folks, that our future is going to be filled with video game opportunities. More and more occupations are going to be coming from these video gaming industries because a lot of our interface, a lot of the ways that we're going to interact with computers are going to be coming from some of the ways that they're already doing video gaming. We already know that we can now have drone pilots that are video game experts that can now go work with the military and fly drones all over the world. Well, yeah, but that's only one thing. Well, except that we also found out that there's technology teams that can go get scholarships at universities around the country by playing on a video game team. And video or uh, universities are now sponsoring video game teams. And scholarships are being won. So your kid could actually go on scholarship to a university, a nice university, because they're a video gamer. What? That's not even a sport. You know what? It is. It's starting to be. Technology, folks, it's not going away. And we have to play it at a different level than we've ever played it before. So be careful. Be careful of demonizing them. Be careful of demeaning or shaming your child because because they play video games. Be careful of shaming them if you've caught them looking at pornography or something like that. I get that that's your instinct, and I get that it's against your value system. I'm totally with you. And the shame is going to do two things. It's going to probably increase the likelihood of them going back to it to medicate. It's also going to um, end up taking the the issue, the sin, the the tech addiction or whatever underground. So be careful. Be careful. There's really not a good purpose to ever shame someone. Or stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you noticed that your daughter tends to be a high-functioning overachiever in all that she does while your son just sits back and maybe he's more chill playing video games? Does your daughter seem to stress over the tiniest details while your son doesn't seem to care at all? This is a pretty common trend, and under your daughter's achievements, trophies, and awards, She may have a lot of anxiety bottled up as well. Why is it that girls tend to have more anxiety than our boys? Dr. Leonard Sachs, a psychologist and a practicing family physician, rejoins us on the show today today to talk about um, and help us recognize where our daughter's anxiety may be coming from. Dr. Leonard Sachs. Well, Sachs, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for inviting me. Great to have you. Why? Okay, first of all, I guess statistically, girls do have more anxiety than boys. That's right, and that's, that's a really uh, robust finding, meaning it's a big, big effect. 
because, uh, you know, I was looking at some of the comments people wrote on my article, and they said, well, that's kind of a stereotype. Well, whether you want to call it a stereotype or not, it's a true statement that girls in the United States are much more likely to be anxious hmm. compared with boys from the same home, from the same demographic. Why? What is it about? Well, I think there's a bunch of factors that uh, contribute. Uh, it's always been the case that girls have been a little more likely to be anxious than boys. But that gap has widened very dramatically, uh, really in the last 10 years. And I think one factor playing into that is social media and the way that kids use social media. And again, we got a lot of good research on this, which I cite. Uh, so, for example, you look at kids posting photos on Instagram or, or uh, sharing photos on Snapchat. Boys are typically sharing photos showing something they're doing, or they go to the football game and take a, foot, a, a, a picture of the game or the pretty cheerleader at the game. Uh, girls go to the same football game, and they're taking photos of themselves at the games. They're much more likely to take selfies, and then they go home and Photoshop those selfies. Now, if you don't like Jacob's photo of the pretty cheerleader, he doesn't care. But if you don't like Emily's photo of Emily, she's going to take it more seriously. So girls tend to be much more invested in their photos, tend to be much more invested in their social media sites, and that really puts girls at risk. And this, again, leads right to the job of parents. You need to govern and guide what your kids are doing online. You need to know what they're doing with their phones. Uh, and, and most parents don't. And I tell, kids, I tell parents, look, if you're going to let your kid have a phone, you've got to put some software on it, like My Mobile Watchdog or NetNanny Mobile, so that every photo they take goes immediately to your phone and your laptop. And you tell them, I will see every photo you take. If you don't want me to see it, don't take it. Uh, this is the job of the parent. It's not reasonable to put this burden on a 14-year-old girl when her friends say, hey, I'll take pictures of you, you take pictures of me, taking our clothes off. What's the girl supposed to say? Oh, I don't want to do that. Right. And my modesty. You have to allow her to say, I can't do that because my parents have this app on my phone. Hmm. Make it easy for your daughter to do the right thing. Is it um, – because looks and appearance are also – it's such a big – bigger deal, it almost seems like, for our young women than our young men. Well, and indeed, social media is more toxic to girls than it is to boys because uh, with girls, it's all about who's hot and who's cute and who looks good in the bikini. And again, that's the whole point of my my book, The Collapse of Parenting, that parents need to be in charge. Uh, And again, we didn't have Instagram even 10 years ago. So right. parents today are not sure how to deal with this. And uh, Emily's upstairs in her bedroom with the door closed with her cell phone, and the parents have no idea what's going on. It's the parents' job to govern, as I said, what kids are doing and to give kids an excuse to do the right thing. Because mm. really, you, I, I just look at my – I have six kids, and I, I look at all of the – Especially, I guess, uh, fourteen and under, um, the, the, their their practices are so interesting in in how uh, like how good all the girls look in every one of their pictures versus the boys. And a lot of the guys, I sit there and I wonder why. What are you bringing to the equation other than you're an eleven year old or twelve year old jock that might be able to throw a ball? But I also look at it too, and I think, man, that guy's lucky that he doesn't have to worry about so much about his image. Well, the boys are much more invested in the video games. Yeah. And if you're an 11-year-old or 14-year-old boy in the United States, uh, one way you can raise your status in the eyes of the other boys is to be all, the first guy to finish all the missions in Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> 
which incidentally is a, is a terrible game uh, where right is wrong and wrong is right. And we have good research showing that boys who play these games, it changes them over time. They become more selfish, less honest, less patient, and the effect is large. Uh, and again, most parents don't know this research. That's the point of my book, Boys Adrift, is to share that research with parents. Uh, because again, parents need to govern and guide what boys are doing on their video games. Because uh, again, when, when your uh, son's friend says, hey, come on over and, uh, and we'll play Grand Theft Auto, uh, is the is the 12-year-old boy supposed to say, well, no, researchers have found that playing that <laughs> game can cause boys to be more selfish. You have to allow them to say, hey, my parents won't allow me to. Or the parents need to step in and say, I'm sorry, my son's not allowed to go to your house because we don't allow him to play those games. Yeah. So it really is parenting um, where we, we've got to pick up our game on a variety yeah. of levels. Is yeah. it is it true? I, I've heard the old adage: anxious uh, anxious moms make anxious daughters. Is that true? My short answer is no. Uh, the longer answer is, of course, it's, there's some truth to that. Uh, you cannot teach a virtue which you yourself do not possess. Uh, but there's been an explosion in anxiety among American girls in the last 20 years. Uh, so if it were the case that uh, uh, moms who are relaxed have daughters who are relaxed, we wouldn't see this. Uh, there's something going on in American culture that is causing uh, kids, and especially girls, to become, to become more anxious, and you cannot blame this on their parents' genetics. Uh, again, that's a major focus of my book, The Collapse of Parenting. Why is it the case that kids today, especially girls, are so much more likely to be anxious compared with kids in the same demographic, in the same neighborhood 20 years ago? Right. Uh, you can't blame this on the parents' genetics. Or even just chemistry, right? We try to blame a lot of anxiety on chemistry. We do. Uh, but that cannot explain the difference between 2003 and 2016. Right. Interesting. And in fact, let's do this. Let's take a break. Come back. We're speaking with Dr. Leonard Sachs. You can find out more about him on his website, leonardsachs.com. And he's talking about a variety of books. And those um, those can all be found. The Collapse of Parenting, Girls on the, e- on the Edge, Boys Adrift, Why Gender Matters, all wonderful resources for you as a parent. We'll take a break. Uh, this interview with Dr. Uh, Leonard Sachs. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On air with us right now, Dr. Leonard Sachs. He's a psychologist and practicing family physician, also the author of many books. Um, on the, His latest is The Collapse of Parenting, Girls on the Edge, Boys Adrift, wonderful resources for all of us. And today we're talking about why girls tend to have more anxiety than the boys do and why sometimes we just kind of call, we think our boys are just lazier. Um, so, uh, Dr. Sachs, welcome back to the program with us. Thank you. Is it uh, so we can kind of address the boys are lazier idea? Are they lazier? Well, when you look at who are the high achievers in American schools, who who's the valedictorian, who's editing the school newspaper or the yearbook, uh, uh, on all those parameters and on many others, 
there's now a large and growing gender gap with boys falling farther and farther behind girls. And I'm actually old enough to remember 40 years ago when it was the other way around, mm. and there was a lot of concern about girls. Uh, you know, I graduated from Shaker Heights High School in, in northern Ohio, and I was the editor of the school newspaper, and the editor before me was a boy, and the editor before him was a boy, and on and on and on. And there was a lot of concern in the 1970s. You know, why aren't girls editing the school newspaper? Why are girls never the valedictorian? We flipped completely in the other direction. Uh, but there's, uh, and, and, you know, some people will say, okay, so what's the problem? Uh, so why is that a problem that things have swung the other way? Uh, there's a bunch of reasons why it's a problem. One is what's called educational assortative mating, uh, which is a fancy way of saying that uh, when a, if a girl's going to marry, she wants to marry a man who has equal or greater educational attainment. And this is not true for boys. Mm. A boy who's earned a four-year degree is very happy to marry a girl who hasn't earned a four-year degree if she has other qualifications. Right. Pretty, for example. Uh, but that's not true for girls. If a girl has earned a four-year degree... She's looking for a man who has at least achieved the same as she has, and there are no longer enough good men to go around. You look at who earned a four-year degree last year in the United States, women outnumbered men by nearly three to two. Who earned a master's degree in the United States last year, women outnumbered men by more than three to two. And so there's a dramatic drop in the birth rate among uh, North America, among Americans, white people who speak English at home. Hmm. Now, the overall birth rate has not dropped as much because uh, the United States welcomes immigrants, and uh, immigrants who don't speak English at home don't have this weird virus of lazy boys uh, who are not keeping up with their sisters. But white people who speak English at home, it's now very common uh, to find families where the girl's working harder and earning better grades than her brother. And is that, again, I guess that is part of the culture, right? It's the... It's, it's, well, it's not just... It's very specific to the contemporary American culture. Yeah, right. Uh, Fifty years ago, Sam Cooke had a number one hit song in this country. He sang, Don't Know Much About History. Mm-hmm. He sang, now, I don't claim to be an A student, but I'm trying to be, because maybe by being an A student, baby, I could win your love for me. He goes on to mention French geometry and trigonometry as subjects in which he's going to try to work harder to earn an A instead of a B because he believes that by being an A student, he will raise his status in the eyes of the pretty girl. That was American culture Hmm. one or two generations back. It is not American culture for English speakers today. You cannot imagine Akon, Eminem, 50 Cent, Justin Bieber, or Justin Timberlake (laughs) singing a song about how they're going to work harder to get an A instead of B in in trigonometry. It would be a joke. Interesting. Uh, The culture has changed in ways that have uh, disengaged boys from academic achievement. And and is the culture, because, I mean, culture has to be, you know, um, introduced. I mean, it is cultural, except it's also seems like the culture is now raising our children more than we are. Parents well, need yeah, to in, uh, maybe insert themselves back in. The collapse of parenting, which is that parents need to step in, turn off the device, and prioritize the family. The, the family has to be more important than the video game, than Instagram, than Snapchat. Wow. And I guess uh, it, it's, it doesn't serve us to call, you know, girls just anxious and guys just lazy. Um, it's, it, we have to address the real issues underneath all yeah, of this. There's nothing hardwired about any of that. Right. Again, in American we can change culture it. two generations ago, the, the, uh, 
the cultural staple then was the giggly, carefree teenage girl in shows like Gidget starring Sally Field. Yeah. Uh, because, in fact, anxious girls were rare in the United States two generations ago. They are common today. There's nothing hardwired about this. It's cultural. <clears throat> and, again, parents have step back, step away. They're not sure what to do. And the point of my book, The Collapse of Parenting, is to empower those parents to show them how to make family the first priority to create a different culture in the household that's a healthier culture than what kids find on the Internet or social media. What are some quick solutions, just things that you can throw out? I got Uh, a bunch. Yeah, give give us some that that parents (laughs) can do for anxiety and for the the lazy factor. No cell phones in the bedroom. No cell phones in the bedroom. Turn off the device. Put it in the charger, which stays in the parent's bedroom. No devices at the dinner table. Uh, Listen to your child. Talk to your child. No earbuds, no headsets in the car. When you're in the car... That's time for uh, you to listen to your child, and your child should be listening to you, not to Justin Bieber. When you make a vacation, your child is not allowed to, to bring her best friend along, or otherwise it's her and her friend going up on the chairlift, and all you've done is to subsidize a very expensive play date. <laughs> Vacations are for family and kids to reconnect. No best friends on the vacation. That's such a good point. How many times? I mean, part of it is just I want my kids to be busy. I don't want to have to babysit them. But that's the point. You're supposed to no, parent them. I don't them. think that's fair to the parents I know. What most parents are saying is, I want my kids to be happy. Right. And they say that they'll be happier if they bring along their best friend. And what I tell those parents is you need to educate desire. Because uh, if you do not educate desire, what, causes kid, what gives kids pleasure is going to end up being cotton candy, uh, video games, and social media. But that's not real happiness. You need to educate desire so that kids develop a longing for something higher and deeper than cotton candy and video games. They're not born knowing that. It's the job of the parent to educate desire, among other things. That's, again, the, my book, The Collapse of Parenting. Yeah. Is it um, – do, do we need to – I mean, I guess we've determined or we, it seems like we've expected someone else to do a lot of this work for us as Well, parents. again, so many parents are unsure of their authority – that they now often look to the school uh, to do this job. And this is, cannot be the job of the school. Uh, it's, it's too big a burden. Uh, it is primarily the, the job of the parent to instruct their child in right and wrong, uh, to educate desire, as I said. And I hear from so many school leaders who say that the parents are expecting us to teach the kid you know, what it means to be a lady and a gentleman, and they're, they're upset that the, that the, uh, the kids are behaving uh, inappropriately and rudely, uh, but then they won't support us. Uh, when we try to discipline kids, they swoop in like attorneys, right. uh, mounting a defense. <laughs> uh, so parent, it's the job, first and foremost, of the parents to teach right and wrong uh, and to work with the school, to support the school in... Uh, building virtue and character. Well, it's great advice. Again, Dr. Leonard Sachs, thanks for being on the show and your great work there. Um, Appreciate your time. Thanks again for inviting me. You bet. Go check out his website, leonardsachs.com, leonardsachs.com, and uh, and, and those books as well. Uh, Four wonderful ones, um, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge, Why Gender Matters, The Collapse of Parenting, Wonderful resources there. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going to be on their show at the top of the hour. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Wrapping it up. Stick with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, today we're talking about tips for raising your your kids in an online world, especially how to raise kind kids, healthy kids. Um, we've already kind of talked about be careful that you're not shaming them. Have a big discussion. Open the discussion up with your kids. Let your kids teach you because your kids know more about technology than you do. And so if you put them in the role of being the teacher, they'll usually open up a lot more for you. Let them help you with your tech issues. It's the greatest thing when your child gets to actually teach dad. And by having kind of that inverted power relationship where your child's the knower and you get to be the learner, you learn a lot about your kids. You learn a lot about how they think. You learn a lot about their esteem. So that's powerful. Some other tools that I would I would just – I'd highly suggest because they're things that to me seem to go to the wayside when we get into the online world. Make sure for your children you're modeling excellent social skills. Because technology, I have a feeling, is going to impair some of our social skills, right? Like we have people breaking up with people via text. That used to be a conversation we'd always have face-to-face. We have people that um, are asking someone out on a date simply by filling out a form, or typing something in on their website. Now, there's nothing wrong with online dating, but there's going to be a day that you're going to have to face the person you're dating. And if you don't have the social skills, you're in trouble. So as a family and as a couple, make sure you spend time teaching your children social skills. Teach them how to make new friends. Teach them how to start a conversation with somebody. Give them some starters. Hey, that's a nice dress. Where did you get it? What are you studying? Just ask. Teach them some skills about how to start a conversation. Teach them skills about how to end a conversation. Have you ever been talking to somebody that couldn't end the conversation? And you almost just want to walk away. Yeah, I'm done. I'm out of here. This isn't working for me. Focus on social skills. And that might even be something in a weekly basis, maybe at your dinner table with your kids. Teach them a new social skill. Make sure that you're also giving your children an opportunity to order their own food at the restaurant, that they're going up at restaurants, and they're, if they have to go back and, and get something or talk to the adult, let your kids talk to the adult. Teach them how to solve a problem by talking. Now, it's hard when they're younger, but when they're a little older, coach them through it. Model it. Model it. Model it. The more you model excellent social skills, I think the more hope your kids are going to have in the world. In the end, it's going to come down to relationships. It's not just going to come down to technology. Think of your Facebook friends. How many of those do you even interact with face-to-face? You could also um, model while you're at it your values and your beliefs. Have discussions with your family about what are the family values. What do we believe in as a family? 
when you see a problem online and you caught one of your children having looked at pornography, bring up our values. Talk about your beliefs. Talk about why that's harmful. Talk about how it objectifies women, how it changes how we see each other, and have those conversations. Start letting your children understand that the decisions you're making about disciplining them are based on a family value of we believe that we should have respect of each other, and that wasn't respectful what you did. We believe that you should keep your promises. And coming home a half hour late, you didn't keep your promise. Tie your discipline back to your family values and your beliefs. Why that's important is because then as your child is interacting uh, with this crazy online technology that's ever-changing, they will always have a core set of values and beliefs that they can go from. No matter what happens online, son, be respectful. No matter what happens online, serve or love or care or lift people. Right? No matter what happens online, be safe. Don't invite someone into your life that you don't know. So model your model excellent social skills and model your values and your beliefs. Also, model connection and sensitivity. One of the things I think that happens with online experiences is um, – we're, we're in a weird state with these people. Uh, the research shows that you are much more likely to say something online than you are um, to say it to someone's face. You're more willing to say something in a chat room or like on a message board underneath an article that you didn't like. You're much more likely to be rude and angry and hurtful than you are if that person was in the room with you. There's just something about kind of the anonymity of being online that that's a problem. And the best way to fix it or fight it is connect. Teach your children that when they're talking to somebody via text, there's a human back there, right? The interface is just the text, but there's a human being that – and you need to be sensitive to what you say. Think about how they would interpret what you're doing. Talk about it. When they've, when they've received a text message that was hurtful, bring it up. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. In our family once, I had my son that would take pictures of one of my other sons that were embarrassing. They were like when he's sleeping. And then he would, he would take them with his phone, with the son that was sleeping's phone. And then he would send it out to all of his friends. And he just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Great. Now, If you live long enough and you have kids, you're going to have these issues with technology. So then we sat everybody down and we had a big talk. What does that feel like? So if your brother did it to you, how would you feel? I wouldn't care. Well, whether you care or not, what do you think he feels? He's your younger brother and you just sent a picture of him looking pretty goofy out to everybody he knows? That's hard. Have the conversations. Model connection. Show them what a healthy connection looks like. But you can't show them what a healthy connection looks like if you don't know how to connect. So that's why you're going to eventually need to 
turn off some tech once in a while and have some connection. And then another rule for you is just model the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. You've got at some point, I think if if technology is going to continue as it is, which it will, it'll just continue doubling. At some point, um, we are becoming a, a population, I think, that is so addicted to instant gratification that I think we're in trouble. So we have to somehow slow the flow of instant gratification. And I would probably have a big discussion about it and challenge everybody in the family. What do you love the most? Teach them. You know, how many times have you just been going home and one of the kids says, hey, can we go to McDonald's or whatever? And you don't, you just, yeah, sure. You know what? Go home. Make a meal. That's one of the great things about making your own meal is it actually takes time. And the time with hungry kids is a good lesson to learn. But nowadays, we can just shove a nugget in their mouth and say, there you go, pal. We're robbing the principles of the harvest, the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. If you don't have the discipline to feel the desire to look at your phone and not look at it, you're in trouble. Because that means you won't have the discipline when your kid is mouthing off at you in 20 or 30 years. You won't have the discipline to not go off on him. We have to start teaching our children about some of these uh, natural laws of like instant gratification and delaying gratification. So technology is great. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It's here to stay. And I think it's incredibly beneficial to our lives if we lead it. But if we're not leading it, then we are just being acted upon and it's going to create bigger problems for us. So lead it for heaven's sakes. Let's just lead it. Anyway, there's a little tech advice for you from Coach Matt. Now, you all, you knew this. You knew it already. The hard part is uh, it's living it. That's where it gets a lot more difficult. So we're going to take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.